Amplify your career through training and development solutions specifically designed for federal government professionals. From courses to help you attain or retain certification, to individualized coaching services, to programs that hone your leadership skills and business acumen, Management Concepts optimizes your professional development. Online, in person, individually, or groups, it's training that's measurably better. Learn more at managementconcepts.com. That's managementconcepts.com. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich, but you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun? Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Chapter 4 of Adventures of the Infallible Godal by Frederick Irving Anderson. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Counterpoint 1. Aside from the fact that one Mr. Jackson of Cleveland had further fattened his batting average by lifting a ball over the ridge pole of the Polo Grounds Clubhouse, a stupendous feat in the dog days, there was nothing in the morning papers to excuse the waste of ink and paper incident to the running off of an addition. Everybody was out of town, and as usual, news had followed the crowd. The serialized comics and other faithful all-the-year-round performers were still active in their respective columns. A variety actress was having herself arrested in Asbury for wearing a one-piece bathing suit. An entire Jersey jury was being hung by its twelfth member, who did not believe in capital punishment. And the crafty Japanese were realistically credited with sewing the gates of the Gatun locks with rhyolite, cordite, maximite, etc., so that at the psychological moment, and as a diplomatic declaration of war, a samurai in the disguise of a barber could press a button and leave the major portion of our fleet of super-dreadnoughts stranded up to its knees in the mud of the lake. Godal, the infallible Godal, languidly pushed aside his breakfast things and ran through his morning papers. He was pleased to note that only the most enterprising of the morning papers contained the item, divulging the secret of the Gatun locks, being built of fulminating compounds instead of concrete, as was popularly supposed, the contemporaries remaining silent on this delicate subject. Godal tossed the paper to an adjoining table, where breakfasting late, like himself, sat his friend of many capitals, Adichie Yakisakwa, or Yakisakwa Adichie, as you will. I see you are up to your old tricks again, Adichie, said Godal genially. The little Japanese looked uncertainly from the paper to Godal and back again several times. He could not quite make out, when Occidentals addressed him, whether or not they were in earnest. Most of them treated him as a joke. Adichi was not a joke. He was traveling round the world slowly, so slowly indeed that when he reached home again he would be very wise and very old. In Germany he made wooden toys. In France he was a banker. In England he sold silks, and in America he wrote for the press. At home, Yasakawa Adichi was something we do not comprehend. Here he was trying his best to be an American, if we would only let him, which we would not. Ha-ha, said Adichi, still somewhat uncertain. Godal, whom he had known in Berlin, Paris, and London, had never treated him as a monkey. 
but Godal always had this habit of eyeing him sharply, which was fully as disconcerting. Adichie had a tinkling little voice. Of all his features, only his square, shiny teeth expressed the mirth that this exclamation implied. He looked at Godal several times to ascertain if that person wished to enter into a conversation, but Godal was again immersed in a newspaper, this time an early extra of an afternoon edition which the waiter had just brought him. So Adichie resumed his task, which was the making of embroidery designs on a piece of paper, the writing of his father's, a system of shorthand much older than the family tree of Ben Pittman himself. Adichie could handle a typewriter with any reporter, but he could think best in his own pothooks. Now he was transcribing music from the do-re-mi-fa-sol of accepted usage into fantastic ideographs. Godal, who watched the curious little globe-trotter in the tiny mirror made by the planes of his eyeglasses, was candidly interested, as he was in everything Adichie did. Suddenly, however, Godal's wandering attention was recalled to his afternoon extra. He brought himself back to the immediate cause of his being in town this torrid weather. Stock exchange news was on the front page. At the opening of the session at ten o'clock that morning, the bears had raided Little Steel knocking the stilts from under that restless disturber of Wall Street traffic just at a moment when a board of directors thought they had everything tacked down tight and had gone to sea. This was good news, indeed. Not because it was Little Steel that was again playing all three rings of the circus, but because there was transpiring a movement in stocks of sufficient importance to break into the front page of the newspapers. Godal had been waiting patiently for Wall Street news to break into the first page for months now. In five minutes he was in his own runabout, a high-powered car that breathed as easily as an engine coasting downhill. He stepped down into Cedar Street ten minutes later and turned the key in his magneto switch so that he might find the car when he returned. It was quite probable that he would be in a hurry when he returned. Next he tossed his silk cap with his gauntlets into the dust-tight compartment behind and donned a shiny silk hat. The silk hat was his badge for this occasion. He turned the corner, swinging along with a free gait which he had acquired in his earlier youth only after arduous toil with a fencing master of repute. The curb market, sprawling over the asphalt in front of the stock exchange, was bubbling like drops of water on a hot griddle. Everyone seemed in a hurry or else trying to out-talk someone else. The only exceptions to the turmoil were the decrepit nags attached to obsolete hansoms roped into line in the middle of the street, and the occasional coming and going of well-fed persons clad in silk hats and frock coats who exuded an air of prosperity and respectability. Both the exceptions, the horses munching at their nosebags and the silk hat brigade, were of interest to Godal. The horses, because of the vegetating life they pursued, these creatures came to Wall Street every day and stood there as long as the exchanges were open. None of them was ever known to carry a passenger since the days of automobiles. The bucolic idea of a stockbroker invariably associates him with a handsome cab, and probably these cabs were retained to preserve local color. Some of the nags stood with crossed legs like make-believe horses one sees in summer vaudeville. Some of them hitched one bony hip high in the air. Others slept through the turmoil, their noses sweeping the ground. All the cabbies looked as if Phil May had drawn them years and years ago. 
It was the human animal in Godal that caused him to prize these cab horses as one of the sights of the town. It was his thieving propensities, his adventuring genius, that caused him to be interested in the silk hat brigade. These latter were the uptown bargain hunters, who never came to Wall Street unless financial news on the first page informs them that the street operators were either over-anxious to sell or over-anxious to buy. They were not gamblers in stocks, they were investors. They merely took advantage of the periodic myopia from which Wall Street suffers, and they were content with a modest hundred percentum on the dollar in the course of a twelve-month. Godall entered the mahogany offices, entitled in large gold letters, Sturgis, Wheelock, and Company, Stocks and Bonds. And returning the nod of an acquaintance here and there, he dropped into a remote chair, dividing his attention between the quotation board and the mob clustering like flies about the chattering ticker. Wall Street tipple was not to his liking. He was not here to play, even though the cards lay on the table face up. Nevertheless, he was pleased to note that Little Steel was still falling relentlessly, and that its sister shares were following it down somewhat like a flock of kingbirds at the tail of a swooping hawk. A second extra edition had just exploded in the street. The riot in stocks occupied the front page. Money kings were rushing to the city by special train. Magnates at sea were clamorously demanding monopoly of the air for the space of the precious minute. A red ink fudge, last-minute news, chiseled into the stereotypes just as the presses are ready to start, recorded new low levels of prices of standard industrials and railroads. Someone was being thrown overboard. Who it might be did not interest Godal, who glanced up from a swift perusal of the paper and murmured, This should bring him in. The hour was striking noon when Wellington Mapes entered the boardroom. He, too, was buttoned in a frock coat and wore a silk hat, in defiance of the sticky humidity. To look at him now, with his wrinkled visage and tottering gait, one would not suspect that in his prime, not a dozen years gone, governments of the world considered it well worth the cost to tell off shrewd agents to report his smallest doings. It was said in those days that he had an organization extending into every corner of the earth, and that he carried a full line of presidents, cabinets, and royal heirs, ready to be seated or dispatched at a day's notice. That was before age had drawn his fangs. That was before he hid himself from his closest intimates in a seclusion none could penetrate. Though he still maintained an official residence, his real home was as unguessed as the riddle of the Sphinx. Only on feast days in Wall Street did he emerge to play with funds that came from the four winds. This was the man that Godall awaited, this man who had so far outlived his time that most men had forgotten him. Godall would run the old fox to his lair today, that he had promised himself. Mapes was a striking figure still at eighty-odd, tall and gaunt, with the beak of an eagle and shaggy brows. One eye was glass supplanting an orb that had been gouged out by a melee crease. In his funereal attire he looked as soft and flabby as a superannuated deacon. But for all his years he was still a man of thews. His hands were enormous. The thumb of his right hand was a full half-inch longer than its fellow, and no thicker than a cigar. It was encircled with a cicatrix, as regular as a made ring. Years ago, a Mongolian bandit with an exalted idea of justice and authority had suspended the two hundred pounds of bone and sinew of Wellington Mapes by the end of that thumb. 
Mapes soon concluded his business. Like a gambler playing an immutable system, he had his tallies chalked and ready for the occasion. He wrote his check with the first two fingers of the right hand, his useless thumb trailing along behind. His eyes burned an inquiring path among the faces clustering about the ticker. Only two or three of these men were sufficiently alive to externals to note the old fox and nudge each other as he passed. The old man tottered to the door and helped himself down the flight of marble steps leading to the pavement by means of the substantial brass railing. Godall watched him covertly through the broad window screened with a fine copper mesh like watered silk. On the last step, Mapes paused and looked up and down the street. Then a miracle occurred. The old man summoned a hansom. Either, thought Godall paradoxically, he sought to attract attention or to avoid it. Possibly again paradoxically, he sought to accomplish the one by means of the other. The cabby at the head of the slovenly line rubbed his eyes and his nose, and it required the services of a friendly messenger boy to interpret the old man shaking a menacing cane. The driver yanked the chain that upset the third leg of his hansom. He chirruped to his horse, and the beast came to life with a start and a shudder. The cab drew up at the curb. The old man permitted the porter-in-waiting to assist him to his seat, and the cab drove off without spoken directions. They would be delivered en route, no doubt. Godall rapidly put in a small order at the desk, and he blotted his check with the self-same blotter which bore the reversed facsimile of the palsied signature of Wellington Mapes. He turned it over. The inscription ran, 44,300. Then it was lost in a maze of confusing numerals. It was some forty-five minutes later that the head of the somnolent line of cab horses drew up at a corner in Lower Seventh Avenue that might have been the backdrop of a ten, twenty, and thirty-cent melodrama. The house was an old rookery of wood, tumbling into decay. A tailor's sign decorated one dusty window, and round the corner a device rusty with age related to the passerby that in the heyday of its prosperity the rookery had housed a carpenter named Jones. At the apex of the building, the house formed a triangle fenced in by an intersecting street and avenue, was a gaudy barber pole, ceaselessly churning an endless screw of red and white to advertise the industry within. In front of the barber shop, trespassing on the pavement, stood an old ailanthus tree in the act of shedding the shreds of its effugent blossoms. Under the tree were playing a group of dirty children. Against the tree were lounging a young man who might be a plumber, to judge by the kit of tools that lay at his feet, and streaks of plumbago that decorated his face. Behind this soiled mask looked out the keenest eyes in all New York, those of the exquisite Godall. Godall had made a quick change from his faultless walking attire to anticipate, for the second time in three months, the coming of Wellington Mapes to this down-at-heels neighborhood. On the previous occasion, when Wall Street News broke into a first-page column and lured Wellington Mapes from his retreat long enough to invest in marked-down goods in Broad Street, he had made his way, then in a taxicab, to this sequestered barbershop, with Godall running a warm scent. But the man the master thief had followed away half an hour later proved, in the end, to have two good eyes in his head and a perfect thumb on his right hand though in all other respects he was Wellington Mapes to the life. Apparently on that occasion the old world adventurer had caused to employ a double. Mapes now alighted feebly and walked across the sidewalk to the door, which opened for him from within. 
It was only a brief wait. Everything occurred as it had occurred in the former instance. The door opened again, and a white-coated barber assisted the old man who emerged to the waiting hansom. Again it was Wellington Mapes to the life, except, as the apparently drowsing plumber noted under his lashes, both eyes were busy covertly examining the street in all directions, and one glimpse he got of the right hand told Godall that all its members were intact. Godall smiled discreetly to himself. It was so simple if one only used his wits. The cab started off. As it rounded the corner, a second cab, another cab of the Wall Street vintage, appeared quite accidentally from Greenwich Avenue, turning north onto 7th Avenue in the wake of the first. And shortly, an automobile that had been standing at the curb opposite began to churn and rolled off leisurely up the avenue. Godall was not the only one interested in the movements of Wellington Mapes on this day. It was a full half-hour later that a tottering figure, muffled to the eyes, emerged from the barber shop, and, as if by magic, a taxicab rolled up to the curb and was off with the old man as quick as a flash. "'I am with you this time, my fine friend,' said Godall to himself. And when the second taxicab was halted at Twenty-Third Street by the cross-town tide of traffic, an exceedingly dirty plumber, with a high-powered runabout of splendid appointments, was next in line. Two. The house was old, yet it retained in its grim signs of age every touch of its pristine magnificence. It occupied a park of probably three acres overlooking the river. A bluff overhung and concealed the tracks of a railroad running beside the placid Hudson. Hemming in the place on three sides were the towering lights of encroaching apartment houses. On the river front, for blocks, the entire slope was a net of paved streets flanked by magnificent structures of terracotta and brick. Only this sequestered square, its lawn overgrown, its shrubbery running riot, and its fences falling to decay, suggested the glories of old Washington Heights and Revolutionary Days, before the city had traveled north. Over the ridge on the other side of the hill were the thirteen trees Alexander Hamilton himself planted as symbols of the units of the young nation. Ten minutes' walk to the north, overlooking the Harlem River from the heights, was the historic mansion where first the British, then the colonial officers, had gathered about the mahogany and planned their scheme of battle. The house stood four-square in its little park. It was of three stories, surmounted by a mansard roof. A veranda clung to its river face, one end sagging under the rotting timbers laid more than a century ago. Godall had chosen a rear window on the first floor, after a painstaking reconnaissance of the situation. His blood tingled. It was rarely that he indulged in an adventure of breaking and entering, and then only for high stakes, as now. But tonight there was an added zest in the affair. Mapes had been a roaring lion in his day and to tamper with him and his possessions at his zenith would have been to invite certain destruction. All this had changed now with the coming of age, and when Godall had set forth airily on this adventure he had not anticipated entering a web. Yet two vehicles do not dog a fictitious person without reason, and Godall, as he worked, could not help wondering if he alone had been successful in picking up the right trail. The mere fact that the crafty old man had on at least two occasions taken such pains to cover his tracks after an open appearance in Wall Street gave rise to a thousand speculations. It was simple enough for a man of Godall's talents. The French window gave easily and noiselessly. 
Godal found himself in a broad room that seemed long unused. Through an open door he caught the sound of tinkling silver. Mapes was at dinner. If Godal's information was correct, the old man was attended by but one servant. That servant would now be engaged in caring for his master's wants at table, and the light-footed thief moved forward in the gloom and lifted a dusty tapestry leading to the adjoining library. A low light was burning there, and the window curtains were drawn tight. It had the familiar pleasant smell of tenancy. In one corner it was a closed desk. Adjoining it was a small safe let into the wall. In the center, under a hanging gas lamp, was a table piled with books and odds and ends. A tray with a decanter of liquor and a half-emptied glass stood invitingly in the center. Several loose sheets of paper lay on the table, one held down by a pen, still wet. It was, as he had learned, the man with a soul seared by avarice, extending over an active life of more than fifty years, had developed one queer trait of character in his declining days. This was his infatuation for music. Mapes had picked up and reduced to Occidental scoring the weird chants of some Eastern tribes he had encountered in his wanderings. There had been no principality too mean for this famous meddler to pry into its secrets. And out of his adventurous past, all he now retained was the memory of those mystic chants whose significance stretched back thousands of years. It was said that the old man toiled unceasingly setting these airs down on paper. Apparently he had been bent over his task within a few hours, for a sheet of music scores, each inscribed in a trembling hand with fragments of impossible themes, lay on the blotter. Godal picked up one of them and ran over the air in his head. But he was not here through interest in exotic melody. He sought something else. Yet he was willing to take advantage of what seemed an old man's abstraction in a hobby, if by its means he could accomplish his own ends. Amplify your career through training and development solutions specifically designed for federal government professionals. From courses to help you attain or retain certification, to individualized coaching services, to programs that hone your leadership skills and business acumen, Management Concepts optimizes your professional development. Online, in person, individually, or groups, it's training that's measurably better. Learn more at managementconcepts.com. That's managementconcepts.com. The sound of a heavy chair scraping over a harsh floor brought Godal to a sense of the immediate present. Softly he slipped behind a velvet hanging and waited. It would be a long wait, but the task was worthy of the pains. Wellington Mapes entered, the servant following at his heels and turning on the lights. The room was so heavily curtained that even the brilliant stare of the chandelier could not be seen from the outside. The servant withdrew immediately, and, as he passed through the door, the old man took a key from his pocket and closed and locked it. He would be alone. Godal's flesh tingled again. The success of his venture largely depended on the next act of Wellington Mapes. Godal's task would not permit him to work under the protection of sleep. He must drug the old man's senses deeper than such surface somnolence as a constitution of eighty vigorous years can call upon for solace. Mapes seated himself in his easy chair at the table and for several moments gazed abstractedly ahead of him. Finally, he roused himself and methodically lifted a brass salver from the desk and placed it carefully on the floor beside his chair. He next took up a bunch of keys that lay beside him, rested his left arm on the arm of the chair so that the keys hung over the brass salver, 
and let his head fall back. It was true, then. Wellington Mapes still indulged this unique habit in his old age. In his early days, Wellington Mapes had reduced the science of sleep to elementals, to lose himself in sleep until the muscles of his fingers relaxed and let fall the keys in the resounding salver, ensuring an instant awakening, was all the rest he required to refresh himself for hours of toil. He had learned the trick from a famous physician, and thenceforth had practiced it as sedulously as the great specialist himself. The old man's breathing became more and more regular. Godall crossed the room with padded steps, watching the keys with fascinated eyes. Suddenly the fingers relaxed and the keys fell, but the resounding crash of their contact with the resonant brass did not follow. They fell softly into the waiting hand of the intruder. Godall straightened up with a smile and regarded the keys in his palm. The old man was his prisoner, for the moment at least, as securely as if bound by chains. Godall knelt softly beside the recumbent form and gently touched the loose flesh of the throat with a thumb and forefinger. With a touch as soft as running water, he exerted pressure on the throbbing carotid arteries. Consciousness would not return to that numbed brain until the blood was again permitted to resume its course. It was a trick Godall had acquired in Java, where it is frequently used. To this device of the ancient Javanese he added another of the moderns. He took from a pocket with his free hand a band of soft rubber, and as carelessly as if he operated on a patient under ether, he proceeded to stretch this over the gray head resting on the cushions. He brought it down to the neck, tightened it, adjusted two soft molds of rubber in the place of his pressing fingertips, and stood away, regarding the finished task with satisfaction. Now he might go about his business. First there was the desk. It was a chance, a small chance, but he must be thorough. The lock came with a click, and he stood up and watched and listened. He gave thanks that Wellington Mapes spent his evenings behind locked doors, free from the eyes even of trusted servants. Inside the desk was a litter of letters and memoranda, mostly pertaining to business, business carried on by the means of the cash that came from the four winds. Godall did not seek money. A letter attracted his eye. He picked it up and carried it over to the light. His quick sense of detail told him that the flap had been steamed and carefully resealed. By whom? Not by Wellington Mapes, surely, because the letter was torn open raggedly at the top. He examined a second to the third. All bore the same evidence that someone was tampering with the mail of this burned-out creature of many lives. Godall, his curiosity aroused, drew forth an enclosure. It was a torn scrap of paper some insignificant memoranda relating to a chart of stocks. Gamblers chart stocks in much the way as the Weather Bureau charts the weather, occupied one side. Surely there was nothing in that to repay a prying person the trouble of intercepting a man's mail. Godall, a magician in ciphers, studied the words and the formation of the letters, but he brought his mind away from the task, satisfied that the inscription contained no hidden message. He examined the other side of the paper. At the top it bore the embossed name of Wellington Mapes. It was a sheet of paper the old man had used in his endless scoring of his weird music. There were a dozen bars of wobbly musical notes, which, as Godall mentally ran through them, revealed a jumble of sounds without lilt or rhythm. A second enclosure he found to have been written on a similar sheet, although the whole sheet was intact and without musical inscription. So were the third and a fourth. 
Some contained fragments of strange chants, similar to those lying on the table beside the heavily breathing Wellington Mapes. Each of the communications was signed with the initial R. The thrifty correspondent, whoever he might be, seemed to have made use of Wellington Mapes waste paper. Thrusting several letters into his pockets for examination at his leisure, Godall put the rest aside and resumed his search. The safe bore an intricate lock, but the fingers of the rogue, schooled to recognize the silent impact of the hidden tumblers, readily conquered the combination. There was something fantastic in the boldness with which he worked, with the sleeping man at his side. From time to time he stopped to listen, but otherwise gave no sign that the situation was perilous. In the safe was a litter of odds and ends, money, papers, and a drawer of foreign coins, another of rudely carved ornaments and decorations in gold, silver, and hard stones, each of them probably with its tale of blood and disaster. Godall gave them hardly a glance. He explored every nook and crevice of the room to no avail. Finally, with infinite caution, he ran his delicate fingers through the clothing of his unconscious victim. But Mapes wore no belt. It might be around his neck, then. Yes, a pouch hung on a thong under the shirt bosom. With hands that trembled ever so little, Godall untied the string that bound the neck of the pouch. His fingers were alive as they searched the recesses. It was here. He drew forth a roughly shaped circlet of zircon. It was large enough for a man's first finger. The characters, microscopic in size, engraved on its surface, were of a language two thousand years dead. Godall took from his own pocket a stone of similar size and shape. To the touch, the two were identical. Yet even his skill had not been equal to the task of counterfeiting the inscription of the original. He placed the substitute in the pouch, and replaced the pouch in the bosom of the unconscious man. The chances were, he thought, that Mapes would not discover the fraud for months, possibly never. Yet the substitute was dross, and the original, which Godall slipped into the back of a capacious watch-case, was a passepartout, a talisman, a charm, a division of kingship, the mere possession of which, in its long-forgotten day, would have enabled its bearer to pass unquestioned through the sacred places of an ancient empire. Today it was a curio, a mere nothing, yet, to the mind of the man now treasuring it, it was worth the risks of a night not yet ended. Mapes had confiscated the strange object from the effects of a heathen prince whom he had found occasion to make away with in the course of his business. It would be just as well, considered its new owner, if the heirs or assigns of that same prince did not find the magic stone in one's keeping. It was worth possessing at the expense of a great deal of pains for one who was collecting for the sake of art itself. Some day, thought Godall, the British Museum must own it, to treasure it away among its unseen gems and symbols. Only Godall and the British Museum were institutions to value its true worth, and this Wellington Mapes, who carried it in a pouch on his body, waking and sleeping. Godall settled the old man's head comfortably against the cushions, arranging his clothing and posture with great care. So far all was well. It now remained only to escape, and at the same time to unlock the fettered senses of his victim. I am presenting you with thirty minutes of eternal time in exchange for your bauble, he said, nodding familiarly at the sleeping form. At your age one must treasure time beyond rubies. Smiling blithely, he stepped to the tall clock opposite, and turned back the hands a half-hour. 
Likewise, he adjusted the hands of the watch of his victim. Standing beside him, Godal measured the distance to the curtain behind which he had taken refuge on entering here. It would take quick work, the type of skill he rejoiced in. With his fingers pressing the arteries whose resumed flow would bring consciousness to the numb brain, he removed the rubber band. With one movement, he tossed the keys into the waiting solver and leaped to his curtain. The sleeper sat up with a start of one suddenly roused. From force of habit, his fingers sought the keys in the salver. For a short space, he sat idle, summoning his lagging senses. Then he drew his chair to the table and resumed his eternal occupation. 3. It was midnight when Godal found the coast clear and left the house behind him. He hugged the ragged picket fence, shadowed by its wild tumble of overgrown shrubs. A person in his attire, with a face well decorated with lead grease, would be given short shrift if found prowling about such a place at this hour of night. He waited patiently at the gate for a full half-hour, and then suddenly he straightened up and started down the neglected avenue. At the corner a man stepped out from the shadow of a tree, stood stock-still in front of him, and laughed. "'Well, my fine jailbird,' said the man genially, but with a distressingly businesslike air. Godall peered into the leering features. Even he, alert for every eventuality, was ill-prepared for the surprise the sight of this man's face gave him. Quick as a flash, however, he had flattened one eyebrow and drawn up one corner of his mouth, a trick that transformed his features. His quick wits worked fast. The night's adventures had developed a sudden and amazing illumination. "'Scott!' he exclaimed with a sneer of contempt. "'You miserable incompetent! I thought we had lost you and your pack of amateurs in Lower Seventh Avenue this afternoon.' Marvin Scott was known to the master rogue as a young dandy who did his best to ape Godall, the exquisite, in the clubs he frequented. Of good family, Scott had been advanced in the diplomatic service for several years till his taste for wild escapades had led to his dismissal. So at least the story ran. The unexpected mention of his own name, coming with sneering sarcasm from this soiled person in jeans, carried Scott off his feet, but he quickly recovered himself. Seizing Godall by the shoulders, a fatal move, for the next instant his wrists were in the grip of wire-like fingers, he struggled toward the light. "'Who the devil are you?' he cried, battling furiously. "'I don't know you.' "'You will,' said Godall vehemently. He had taken a long shot, and even now that he felt sure of his ground, he was entirely aware that the infallible Godal was lost if this man recognized him on such a venture. That the house of Wellington Mapes was being watched could mean but one thing. The old fox was at his old games again. He had long held a suspicion that Marvin Scott's long journeys hither and yon about the earth were not wholly unofficial. This thing was as clear as day. The gentleman adventurer could be here in but one capacity, as a secret agent of the State Department. "'You have made a pretty mess of this business,' cried Godall. He released his hold, but he thrust out his chin so savagely that the other, nonplussed at the sudden turn affairs had taken, shrank before him. "'Do you think I have nothing better to do than devote my time to your failures? Tell me, who among you had the wit to trace Mapes here after he doubled on you? Tell me that. Take your hand off your gun!' Godall commanded, pursuing his advantage, for the other, perplexed in spite of his chagrin at the way the stranger had ridden him down, made a move toward a pocket. The stranger's tone was one of authority. In his trade no man knows his brother. "'Follow me,' said Godall over his shoulder as he started off. "'And remember,' 
he said as he waited for the other to overtake him. I am brown. If you call me anything else in the next half hour, I will see to it you are started to Shanghai on foot. In the cover of the darkness, as they proceeded, Godall indulged in a smile. So young Marvin Scott, in the role of a diplomatic agent, had been assigned to match his wits against the wily old mapes. The situation that had promised to be exceedingly embarrassing was turning out entirely to Godall's liking. His man, who it was plain to see accepted him now in his character of a disgruntled superior, was following along as tamely as if he had been accustomed all his life to take orders from a plumber. They mounted the steep hill to Broadway, and then crossed to Amsterdam Avenue. Godall picked out an all-night saloon and entered the side door. The back room was deserted, and he and his companion were soon sitting down and regarding each other with very different emotions. "'I suppose,' said Godall wearily, "'that if I had let you have your way, you would have further distinguished yourself by picking me up and turning me over to the police as a common housebreaker, eh?' The other man said nothing. He was trying to remember where he had seen this face before. If it had not been for the smear of plumbago, as black as lamp-black, running parallel to the nose, the task might have been easier. Godall shook his head, a queer smile playing about his lips. The damnable part of it, he went on, in a tone of utter disgust, is that, now that I have finished up another one of your failures, you will get the credit for it, just as you have done in the past. Godall took an envelope out of his pocket, one of the three pilfered from the littered desk of Wellington Mapes. "'As a piece of fine art,' he said, now enjoying the situation to its utmost, "'I call your attention to this. "'My man, did you by any chance think that you were playing with a baby "'when you undertook to scrutinize the mail of Wellington Mapes? "'A child of five could have done a better job of steaming than that.' Scott's eyes bulged at the sight of the letter, which, it was true, had already passed through his hands. All his defenses were now down. He sat silently, watching the dirty and offensively authoritarian person of whom he had had the bad luck to run afoul, as that individual gave his undivided attention to the enclosure of this envelope. The adventure of the night was, after all, a mere bagatelle to Godal. Something infinitely more interesting was on Anne now. He read and reread the words of the letter. They suggested nothing but margins and rights, dividends, and Supreme Court decisions affecting big business. He turned the paper over, and a second time a dazzling illumination stole over his senses. He had begun to discover that two and two make four. There was a decrepit piano in the room. Godall stepped over to it, and holding the paper with its straggling bars of music, he fingered the notes over. "'I suppose that means nothing to you, Mr. Marvin Scott,' he said. Scott shook his head, but a dull red began to burn in his cheeks. A dozen of these letters had passed through his hands, but not until this moment had he thought of attaching any significance to the crazy scores written on the back. "'No, I suppose not,' said the plumber person abstractedly. "'Let me have your pen.' It was then twelve-thirty. At one-thirty, Godall handed Scott a sheet on which he had written the answer to the riddle. It was a cipher, after all. The crafty old mapes had buried it in the music score. "'It is a bit clumsy,' said Godall, "'but at least it has the advantage of not requiring a written key, and it can be varied at will.' The key ran as follows. A equals AA, B equals AB, C equals AC, D equals AD, E equals AE, F equals BA, G equals BB, H equals BC, I equals BD. J equals B E, 
K equals CA, L equals CB, M equals CC, N equals CD, O equals CE, P equals DA, Q equals DB, R equals DC, S equals DD, T equals DE, U equals EA, V equals EB, W equals EC, X equals ED, Y equals EE. The dazed young man took the paper from Godall's hand. His face was flushed with an intermingling of enthusiasm and chagrin when he looked up. Godall, the soul of indulgence, was beaming on him. Reduce your score to letters, C, D, E, F, G, A, B, C, he said. The F and the G are blinds, you see, he said. So are the sharps and flats. When you come to a chord, disregard all but the dominant note. I see I must teach you elementals. Scott took the letter and set to work feverishly. Soon it was done. By gad, wonderful, he cried, and he read the translation. Flamenco and Naos complete. Perico not later than the 15th. Flamenco, Naos, and Perico? Godal rummaged his brain. Those, if he remembered rightly, were the three islands of the Pacific side of the Panama Canal, which the government was fortifying with such secrecy. It beats all, cried the youth, outside of Goethals and the House and Senate Committee on Military Affairs, and possibly the War College. There is not another man alive supposed to know those plans. And yet old Mapes, practically dead and buried ten years ago, so far as his ability to meddle is concerned, has walked right into the middle of things with his damnable organization and snitched the plans right out from under our noses. I presume, said Godall, whose mind, working back through a series of pictures, had suddenly found a new inspiration, I presume, seeing you have distinguished yourself so signally on this end of the combination, that you have not the remotest idea who is working the other end. The enthusiasm of the other was suddenly squelched. He blurted out his complete failure. Do you happen to know a smooth little Jap named Adichi Yasakwa? asked Godall. He is taking one hundred years to circumnavigate the globe. Very well, said Scott in surprise. The mildest little creature that ever— Yes, I know. Very mild indeed, retorted Godall sharply. Remember, this is your affair. I am not to be known in it, not even to the chief. Recollect that, or off goes your head at the collarbone. Scott, he said, leaning forward, Yasakwa is interested in music, deeply interested in music. He transcribes it into pothooks of his own. Don't attempt to decipher his pothooks. That would be asking too much of you. But raid his rooms after eleven in the morning, and you will find just what the government of Japan thinks of flamenco, laos, and perico. And Scott, he added, looking very dignified and solemn, make it a point not to know me when we meet the next time. I congratulate you on the successful termination of your assignment. I have the honor of wishing you a very good morning. End of Counterpoint Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Chumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, Mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. <laughs> The Chumba Life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over a 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. 
Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.